Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Seeking Sustainability. I had actually... (laughs) So I'm in my basement and I actually recorded. I started recording what I thought it was like intro round two. And I was like, oh, this one's going so good. And then my mom calls down to me. And I'm like, oh, man. So I'm... Because I'm I'm in my parents' house. Um, So, yeah. This is intro round three. But um, how are you guys? How is not that that's kind of rhetorical i'm you know i'm not getting a response back because it's just me and my microphone but i do i am you know genuinely curious how everyone is doing and um i mean this i think this last week has been so heavy on the hearts and the minds and the shoulders of so many in regards to you know the wildfires um I mean, not only metaphorically does it feel like the world is on fire, but it literally is. And I know a lot of us, you know, youngsters are on social media digesting, digesting a ton of content constantly. And a lot of that, you know, it's pretty heavy stuff. And we see pictures of the orange and scarlet red skies. And it's, you know, the and then in addition to that, the election is nearing closer. And that's, you know, things and there's still a global pandemic so I know, I know things are feeling pretty heavy and, uh, oh, and I, the Black Lives Matter movement is still happening, it's still so important and um, just a quick reminder before I start talking about this episode is, of course, um, just, a, just a reminder to, you know, stay in touch with that and, and stay connected to that movement because it is still as, a, as important as it was a month or two ago and forever will be. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It's just been, it's just been a funky week and I just wanted to remind you guys to have hope as as cheesy as that sounds, but like, I mean, the closing question in my podcast episodes are what gives you hope for the future? Um, so hopefully these episodes, you know, bring you just a bit of hope amidst the chaos that is happening. Um, and yeah, sorry, I didn't mean to start on such a heavy note, but um, I just wanted to get that off my chest. Um, oh, so this episode, oof, it's so good. <laughs> I'm really excited to share this with everyone. Um, and I'm so honored to have this guest. Um, so in this episode, I I had the opportunity to chat with Ariane Harrison, who is like just the most badass woman ever. Like she's so cool. <laughs> and if she listens to this, hopefully. Um, but she not only is an architect so she co-founded harrison atelier which is this incredible innovative dynamic architecture firm based out of brooklyn new york so not only is she a licensed architect in the state of new york and the co-founder of an architecture firm but she's also a mother um so you know that's on her plate and then she's also a professor at pratt university so for any architecture students that went to SCAD or if you know anyone that is into architecture make sure to send them this episode because she is so interesting to listen to um and I'm so grateful that she took the time out to speak to me because oh my gosh she is just brilliant and also like I mean I think I mentioned this to her but it was so encouraging too to talk to someone who is a professional and you know working establish themselves successfully in the creative field but you know is doing work that still promotes and upholds their values and is working to you know promote innovation and environmental protection and awareness around all of that so because a lot of us maybe the people who are listening to this might also be recent graduates who are kind of like I don't know what I'm doing you know um a little bit nervous going into the fields that they're they're going into because I know I am but she w- is really just an inspiration and I am again so grateful to have talked to her um so before I go I am going to read you things from their website and again so anything um her contact information her website um their Instagram and then anyone or anything that she mentions throughout this episode I will link in the show notes so you can check all of them out or contact her if you want to whatever else um but we talk about um I wanted to introduce you guys to the the basically like the 
what was I going to say? Oh, um, her architecture firm and their primary goal. But also we talk about a major, major project that her firm has been working on. And um, it's incredible. It's called the Pollinator Pavilion. But we don't really dive super deep into the background of that. So I wanted to read from her website. And before you fast forward, because I know this sounds dry, it's really interesting. And this is super important. So um, I want you guys to know what the Pollinator Pavilion is before you listen to the episode, because that's super important. So Harrison Atelier is a Brooklyn-based architecture firm founded by Seth Harrison and Ariane Harrison. Our central research question, how can we build for more than one species, challenges the conventions of a human-centric architecture and proposes cohabitation by multiple species while also seeking a larger role for architecture in environmental activism. So we talk about cohabitation throughout the episode, and that's what it's referring to. And if you want to read more about that, definitely, definitely go to harrisonatelier.com, which I'll link in the show notes, of course. Additionally, to introduce you guys to the pollinator pavilion and again to note that this is directly from their website which you can check out and i'll link so how can we build habitat for the species that are foundational to our food production much remains unknown about the thousands of solitary bee species in america despite their importance as the pollinators for 70 percent of the non-agriculture environment a first pavilion is under construction at old mud creek farm part of Abby Rockefeller's 2,500-acre farm, a model of regenerative organic agriculture in New York's Hudson Valley. The Project Alley's architecture from Harrison Atelier, ecological art programming from Francine Hunter McIvern's Frank Institute at CR10, which I'll link that to, and organic agriculture from Ben Dobson at Old Mug Creek Farm in Hudson Hemp. The pavilion's innovative paneling system houses hundreds of nesting tubes for solitary bees, as well as a solar-powered electronic monitoring platform that with the support of Microsoft's AI for the Earth Grant, okay, they got a grant from Microsoft, which is insane, but I digress, um, integrates a machine learning interface to enable (laughs) automated species identification. Like, what? The diverse micro-conditions that we developed with our pavilion's novel paneling system provide artificial nesting structures for solitary bees and models environmental stewardship in our Anthropocene age. Whoa, like that, like that's really lofty stuff. Um, I had to read that a couple times to comprehend it. It's incredible, absolutely incredible. But yeah, I know that was long, but I wanted to introduce you guys to really what the Pollinator Pavilion is. And if you go on the website, they have so many other projects that they've done, which all of which are amazing. But Again, scat folks, art people, make sure to share this with your friends and make sure to follow Harrison Atelier because they are incredible and Ariane is, is incredible. Um, so yeah, I know that was very lengthy, but without further ado, please welcome Ariane Harrison to the Seeking Sustainability podcast. The first thing that I wanted to ask was, which is kind of like my introduction question for everyone, is in your opinion, what does it mean to be an environmentalist? Huh, interesting. That's a it's a great um, broad question, and it's interesting because I just got out of a meeting. Um, Pratt has a center for sustainability, um, and being an environmentalist is not the same as being sustainable. Um, and maybe I can take your question to say, um, being an environmentalist may mean having to not put your species so much in the forefront of all everything we do. So one of the areas that prompted my work and my research is it's a line of thought called the post-human. And it doesn't mean really when humans are dead, it means or when humans are extinct. What it, it relates to a kind of thinking that asks, could we as a very advanced species begin to not only value our own self-interest could we think about more about being one species among you know we know there's there's about 1.7 or 8 identified species in the world we think there might be as many as 10 million we also know we're in the the face of a six mass extinction event at our own (laughs) that's our fault um 
one species. Um, so, so one of, I have always approached, I've been very interested in asking why a field like architecture that's supposed to ally, you know, design, landscape architecture, you know, certain terrains, you know, on some level architects are responsible for habitat. And I keep asking like, why, why are we so interest, uninterested in the habitats of other species? And so I would say it's a long way to circle back to your question about being an environmentalist. I think if we understand that humans are part of, you know, we're obviously an integral part of the environment, especially if you accept that we have created the new geological age that we're calling the Anthropocene, um, then to be an environmentalist means you maybe have to think about how the world continues not just at the service of humans, but at the service of all species. And I know that we don't, you know, you can ask a lot of very thorny questions about which species get to survive, you know, what are the conditions um, that you take on to promote biodiversity? Um, how, how are humans responsible for the biodiversity that we have like shut down? <laughs> um, so maybe again, environmentalists may mean just designing with other species in mind, or certainly designing with the relationship of humans plus other species would be one answer. <laughs> That's amazing. No, I have so many like things to say to that. Well, firstly, I want to say that it's so interesting for me as a recent graduate from an art school to hear someone who is a professor talk about this because there was just not a focus of that at my school. So I was definitely like an odd one out hmm. in regards to like hmm. me being so heavily interested in sustainability and like um designing in a more in a more environmentally conscious way even though I studied fashion but um so it's really really interesting and encouraging to hear you talk about that and also I started reading your um writing the Architectural Theories of Environmentalism, Post-Human Territory. Yes. <laughs> it was so interesting. And um, I had never heard the term post-human. And yeah, I, when I first saw it, I totally was like, wow, that sounds really post-apocalyptic. Yes. Like that's really heavy. But then I started reading it and I was like, this is so profound. Like the idea of, of living in a world where humans aren't at the forefront of everything from design to all industries. Every industry. It's so I mean, interesting. It's it's interesting too because you know I I teaching in a school like Pratt, which is basically a design school. You know we have a very vibrant fashion um, program. We have virtual uh, information science. Every program really right now is looking at ways to conduct their practices sustainably. So fashion, I have a lot of friends that are developing, you know, um, all kinds of synthetic recycled fabrics, trying to intervene on the material chain, but then also on the labor chain, you know, that we can't, living, um, being an environmentalist means that you can't just take the things you don't like, like minimum wage labor or less, you know, right. slave labor, let's be serious. Um, or trash and just like push it to another part of the world. <laughs> you know, I think being an environmentalist means that that your your concept of the inputs and outputs of your design work have to be accounted for. We can't just practice, you know, as if the art object, the beautiful thing is the only <laughs> right. aspect you know, that we have to consider inputs and, and at what cost, you know, always asking at what cost, not just the cost of material, but the cost of labor, the cost of unseen labor. Um, all of those, you know, I think if we circle back to your question about being an environmentalist, I think many designers are doing a real soul searching about what about all of the invisible components of the environment, not just pollution, which is, you know, relatively invisible, sometimes if you're lucky, but all the different, all the different sort of networks of labor. When we think of, I, I teach in Brooklyn and I live in New York and, you know, when we understand like who actually built this city, you know, who actually did the yeah. work of, you know, all the work that goes unseen, then I think we, we have to ask, is our environment, how our, 
our entire society is propped up on work that was not paid for, work that, that was done without, um, you know, recognition, recompense, uh, without any kind of safety. And I think that's where the Black Lives Matter intersects so clearly mm -hmm. with issues of environmental justice, um, that we understand that how you treat the environment is really, it's also how you treat all the different parties in your environment and who you, who you even admit to having rights. You know, we, we talk about human rights, but I think the Black Lives Movement has just put it so front and center to us to ask us to recognize all the times that we didn't, all the different kinds of humans we've never admitted to having um, a set of rights. I know I'm veering off, but um, no. there's a lot of really important work on how the effects of climate change are very disproportionately felt by poorer communities, communities of color. And so being a good environmentalist means, again, you know, it's, it's a really big picture and you have to face some pretty ugly paths, at least if you're American. <laughs> yeah. And I think like looking, something that I've learned through design and just like, yeah, as like a young creative trying to like learn more in order to move forward and make industries better or just completely change them all altogether is looking at the whole picture and not thinking in a linear way and not because it's such an, I always say it's like this eternal onion of an issue. You peel back one layer and there's so many layers beneath that. And it's also this really, really messy, intricate web where everything's interconnected. But if you're someone who grew up with a lot of privilege, then a lot of times you didn't experience, you know, the, the downsides of the systems that are ingrained into our country. And it's also, you know, I think it, it really, I, I'm an educator and I take education extremely seriously, but I, you know, when I, I did in my undergraduate studies, I did a lot of art history, a lot of architectural history. And I always read about the industrial revolution, that the rise of the new European bourgeoisie that like challenged the monarchy and paved the way for the arts to flourish. Like every narrative I heard about content, about modern art and contemporary art relied on this new emerging class, the bourgeoisie. Mm -hmm. And it's like, you peel back that onion a little bit and you know, you find out like, so that bourgeoisie was, that was profit from the massive slave trades all over the world. So, you know, that, that I think it may, it really, I think asks us to interrogate the foundations of our, our narratives about yeah. cultural production. Yeah, you know, question the narratives <laughs> that we've been taught and like also ignored for so long, ignored which has allowed so this long. to continue. <laughs> yeah. So I also wanted to ask, um, you mentioned this kind of briefly, but just to talk a little bit about your background and what you do, who you are, and also the firm. Sure, that. sure. Um, so where to start? Um, I, I'm going to start with now and I guess work backwards. Um, okay. <laughs> so I'm, um, I'm an architect. I'm licensed in the state of New York. I am also an educator. So I've, uh, I've taught, I've been teaching at Pratt where I run the advanced degree programs or the masters of science in architecture and urban design um, programs. So I, I've done that for the past three years. And before that I was at the Yale School of Architecture for over 10 years. Um, teaching studio design. I mean, the architectural education in grad school has studio where you, you kind of learn how to make projects, you design buildings, you learn how to design digitally, you learn how to model um, history theory courses, introducing you to, you know, both elements, and then a number of what we could call research courses. So I've always taught kind of across the spectrum. And I had the, you know, the pleasure of teaching also in Yale College, so at the undergrad level, um, with fantastically, fantastically bright students. Um, and, uh, and so that interest in teaching, I think, um, started in college. I, I went to Princeton undergrad. I did uh, architectural history. I loved, <laughs> I loved school. I think I decided I was just 
going to have a life where I was never outside of the university. And I pretty much <laughs> managed to do that. Um, so when I, I studied architectural history undergrad, um, I went right to graduate school for a PhD. And I got a little bit burnt out, um, traveled to Europe, spent five years in, in um, what was in the very early days of venture capital in Europe. So helping funds raise money and structure funds, and then decided to come back to the US to tackle my PhD, to go back to what I loved. And in, um, in working on architectural history, I just felt that I needed to know more intimately what is going on in the design of buildings that I write about. Let's, then I was writing about from a historical perspective. So I took a kind of intro to design class at Columbia and was just in love you know, that I had to have more of that in my life. So I did my, my MRC at Columbia and then went to work uh, for an architect named Peter Eisenman, who brought me to teach with him also at Yale. And, you know, it's kind of goes forward. So my firm, um, I founded my firm while I was teaching at Yale. And we, so the book that you mentioned, um, Architectural Theories of the Environment, Post-Human Territory, was part, it actually began as a research seminar in 2009. I was, you know, a teacher. I was very interested in these topics and just starting to realize that you can have this wonderful alliance or partnership or collaboration, if you will, with teachers and students where you introduce them to a topic. It's not that you're teaching to them. It's that you're discovering the material together. You're figuring out how to talk about it. You're figuring out where it matters. And this came from a sense that there were some, you know, critical ways to talk about the environment that weren't, oh, we're architects, we're going to design a solution or what, what, you know, oh, I'm a, I care about the environment. Therefore, I design green buildings according to LEED standard. And that's the end of the story. We can fix it, you know, just leave it to us architects, we can fix the problem. There was a really already, you know, in, in 2000, I think I felt that there, there we're not, these problems are, are much bigger than, than is being addressed right now. And I felt a certain amount of discomfort with just some of the, the kit of parts or solutions-based thinking that the only thing to do about the environment was to fix it. Like you couldn't have a conversation about why something was wrong, why we ended up this way. You just had to like have a green building, yeah. harness energy, be creative cradle. And like, you know, I just felt like, you know, there's a lot like, what about everything outside of the building? Like every other species. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, so my seminar started out as a place to talk about that with students. We were just, all we were doing was finding out who writes about other species, who writes about this condition that's more than human, and where are examples. So we would find, you know, if you look in Piranesi's prints of ancient Rome from, I don't know, I think he's like, when is he? He must be like 1650s, 1670s. Um, you find that all the ruins of Rome are inhabited by humans and animals. So animals are not in the main city, they're not represented in the grand city, but they're in the ruins, the outskirts. And so we kept finding Palladio, um, the, the Venetian architect did all of these villas that when you teach architecture, you just look at the villa because it's this beautiful geometry. But then if you go back, you realize, oh, there's the villa flanked by these long wings that hold animals because these were all gentlemen farms. It's just been sort of cut out. That information was deemed not, it wasn't architectural, it was animals. Get rid oh, of interesting. it. Interesting. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's really funny. So there are ways that architecture was taught to teach people how to focus on the form, on the kind of different dialogues between architects that always removed the animals. And so we were sort of digging that up and putting it together. And then in, in teaching the seminar and I would have students design proposals, write, um, find precedents. We also were in dialogue with a number of contemporary dancers. And this is two totally different threads. One thread is 
the history of the posthuman is not, it's not a term from architecture, it's actually a term from performance, from contemporary perform, uh, performance in the 1980s. So, you know, I was researching the posthuman because I'd heard the term, but then I found, oh, it's related to dance, how, how interesting. The other hand, just, I have a lot of friends who are dancers, and they said, we want to do, um, you're a designer, do a stage set for us. Like, That's so cool. <laughs> and like, it was just, the, so cool. just the conjunction of things. So we did a whole series of, so my, for, my firm started with set design, performance design, while we were researching the posthuman, which happens to be a term from performance. And we realized that in performance and stage design, we could do, we could tackle things that we wouldn't, we wouldn't know how to do in architecture. So for example, we did a piece called Veal about industrial meat. And it's really about, you know, veals have very unhappy lives. They're kind of contained in cages. They're only fed milk. They're, you know, they, they just don't have a life. They're caged their entire existence. And that links to, you know, industrialized food production, the way we, the way in America we create these huge feedlots that create tons of manure that go out into the, get washed into rivers, create algal blooms, like kills everything. So right. it's again, you know, this thinking of yourself as an environmentalist, it's like some of that meat is linked to a pretty difficult chain of effects. And so in performance, we started to, we, you know, address that. And then, you know, working slowly through pavilions, through competitions um, in my practice to hypotheses about like, what if, what if you shared the building surface? Mm. You know, what if the building surface had footholds for different species? What, you know, is a little bird shit that bad? Seriously? Like, <laughs> can we just like, it's not such a big deal. Imagine if you took the maintenance away from that to like other forms of environmental upkeep, you know, that, that this, this focus on the facade of buildings is really negative. And then in the research of, of that book that you mentioned, I did a lot of research on a firm called Studio Gang that had been, they're Chicago-based. Chicago, Studio Gang, they're great. I mean, their genie gang is, um, the person who runs a firm is, she's completely inspiring. Um, but she, in Chicago, when you live in that city, you often, you walk around the city and at certain times of the year, in the fall, for example, you find a lot of dead birds on the sidewalk. So, okay, why so many dead birds? because they are migrating and they are hitting glass skyscrapers because they cannot see that glass is glass. So our human aesthetic and our desire for like tons of light that in fact requires tons of air conditioning <laughs> um, creates a, a whole cascade of, prog of problems. So she started doing work that pointed attention to this and she actually made a huge impact on the industry through, I don't know if you're familiar with LEED, but you might've heard of a LEED platinum building that the highest level of sustainability. She, her work got LEED to accept that skyscrapers, it got them to accept that a building that was not hostile to birds with its use of glass got a credit. So you got credit for like bird safe building. And that's kind of, thanks to her. So um, I forgot where, where I was, oh, you were asking about the, the kind of the background in the firm. So, so in, you know, in this combination of teaching, research, building stuff at the stage scale, pavilion scale, competitions, we just, you know, things naturally become a little more solid. <laughs> yeah. And then we had this wonderful um, dialogue with the curator who put us in touch with a regenerative regenerative organic farm um, owned by the Rockefellers in Hudson, New York. And that's, you know, that's the story of Old Mud Creek that I think you have, you, you know, there, you know them well. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. So many interesting things. So first, so I was a contemporary dancer. I danced my whole <laughs> life. So that's actually so cool. And the fact that, again, everything's so interconnected, so interesting how, 
how many I feel like doors can open creatively and when you think in like a really interdisciplinary collaborative way so like to find the connection between architecture and then dance and then um and then dance and agriculture like who would have thought <laughs> but it's so interesting and then when you were talking about Chicago so that's really interesting because I they're on my list of there's this organization that's on my list of people to reach out to it's called the wild bird fund I think mm. and it's based out mm. of New York City and they rehabilitate birds that have flown into skyscrapers and buildings and that's something that I had never thought about ever until I came across this organization and there's just it's just one of those things that like again you just don't think about and then and then once once I came across this organization I was like that makes so much sense like how did I never take that into consideration that so many birds are being harmed by these tall structures and that's you know that's those are kind of the deaths that are visible the deaths there's a lot of deaths that are invisible you know the kind of species that just don't have habitat anymore right. I think you might hear a lot about um, the colony collapse disorder hitting honeybees. So I mm. think, I think in the public awareness, we know that honeybees are overworked, they're dying, they're mites, yeah. there's disease, there's a lot of reasons why those colonies aren't surviving. And of course, because we humans are like basically only interested in what <laughs> helps us. Yeah. Um, suddenly there's a new attention to pollinators. So I think right around Hudson this summer was planned all of these different installations having to do with how to support pollinators. And this pavilion is very much part of that, um, looking at native pollinators. So the pollinators that aren't the European honeybees, but the ones that exist everywhere that pollinate literally everything right. and that we know, you know, we know super little about them because they live in little patches of bare earth, rotten, rotten wood, um, reeds, things that used to be plentiful, but now as we develop mm. kind of relentlessly, they're just squeezed out of um, living space. So, <laughs> I mean, I think the yeah. need to design in ways that, that, create platforms for other species is just critical. Right. And one of my questions, which kind of it, or relates directly back to that, is about cohabitation. So is that what you would say cohabitation means, is to create? You know, it's a, it's a, great, it's a great and like tricky question in the age right. of COVID, right? Because we, we understand that viruses can mutate from one species to the other. We know that SARS, I think, had a similar beginning and that some of these conditions, and we could ask, you know, is it a condition of humans sort of trying to eat very exotically and eat anything that strikes their fancy? Or is it, you know, we've had a number of diseases that speak to tricky conditions of producing human food. Um, so I, I don't, I don't know how to parse the cohabitation issue. There are some species like the majority of native pollinators that we could say, hey, New York City just passed a rule to put green roofs and solar on every new construction. Why not plant it with native grasses and support native pollinators for the sake of biodiversity? You know, right. Yes, you have to do studies to see, can you hold rainwater? Does it work for urban cooling? It probably does, you know? <laughs> it's just like grass, right? Um, sure, putting trees on roofs has a whole different dimension of weight, et cetera, but if it's a thin green roof that's like six to eight inches, could you support biodiversity? Could you support mm. different plants, different pollinators that way? And so, is that cohabitating or is that like sharing a surface or, you know, what we've been working towards in talking about the building surface, humans look at building surfaces. You look at the side of a skyscraper, but you don't do much else. You might photograph it, but do you like touch it? Do you live on it? Or is this a surface where maybe, something else could live and are you cohabitating or are you living sort of side by side in a way that doesn't that allows them other species to live and that doesn't create disease-borne scenarios that doesn't create right any problems that you know again 
the biggest problem might just be aesthetic that like, yes, other animals defecate and you might need to clean that up. Yeah. <laughs> um, Is it tricky yeah. to navigate with the kind of work that your firm does with focusing on creating um, structures that can be cohabited by different species? Is it ever a challenge to balance form versus function? Yes, absolutely. Because, I mean, on a number of levels, one is that the function level is kind of how we started with the problem of uh, this pavilion that's, that's behind me. We wanted to, we started out asking a number of scientists affiliated with the, the museum, the American Museum of Natural History. So we're really interested in bringing visibility to native pollinators. What do they like to live in? And the answer was, well, they're very opportunistic. They, they'll, they'll live in what they can find. They'll live in holes made by other animals. You know, they'll live in dirt and wood, et cetera. So you couldn't really get to a function argument there. Like they needed some little holes to live in, but you couldn't design a building around like a tiny little hole that's like a centimeter in diameter. Um, but the reason we wanted to make something visible you know, like a pavilion, is to bring it to humans' attention. So you're, you're, you've got different scales. You have the mm -hmm. scale of the species that lives in it, which is tiny and doesn't need architecture, frankly. Right. <laughs> be left alone <laughs> and not like pesticided to death. Um, and then you have the scale of the humans that do much more of the destructive work where the idea is if you can raise to everybody's attention the value of this tiny little species maybe we get a more environmental thinking. So the, the idea becomes architecture is, yes, it's a space of shared experience, but it's also like a beacon or a sign or a monument to like, right. please pay attention to this other species, you humans. <laughs> yeah. um, and, and so that's where the form is meant to attract attention for humans. So this building, when you drive down, um, I think it's Route 10, and then there's another highway, there's sort of two highways, and you can see it, and it's like, that is a weird thing in that field. What is it doing there? You just drive by and you see it like the object that doesn't quite belong, and so it starts to add, people ask, what is that weird thing? Hopefully they look it up or drive in or visit or have a, you know, come to one of the farm events and learn something that makes them think, you know, maybe I won't use Roundup. Maybe mm -hmm. I'll put a bee hotel in my garden. Maybe I'll, you know, a range of actions that just is possibly prompted by like, oh, I never really thought about native species. How interesting that they're everywhere, yeah. you know. <laughs> And it's interesting, I mean, for anyone who ends up listening to this, um, bringing pollinators into where you live, even if you live in like an apartment building, is really easy, like just plant, planting native plants. And then bee hotels are so easy. You can literally take a log and drill some holes into it. And exactly. it's so simple. So and they're very yeah. docile, you know, they're not because they don't have a hive and honey to protect. Hmm. These are not bees that are just going to aggressively sting you. I think there's a, a large number of solitary bees don't even have stingers. So it's like they're very neighborly. And then if you think about, well, does a greener city benefit humans, you know, on a level of air pollution or air purity? Yes, air quality yeah. is better. When you have more greenery, you have less urban heat, so that's good. You have better water filtration, um, better sequestering stormwater, so you don't get your sewer spilling into the river. That's right. good. You know, we're not killing everything in the river anymore. So there's so many overlaid benefits that it's just an easy, like, yes, cities should be greener, and to have green things, you, they need to be pollinated. So, <laughs> right. And, so it makes uh, sense. Yeah. I, it's just, you know, I think, I think it's nice when you get to a pretty logical proposition, like this, this works for a lot of different parties. So let's, let's think about this. And right. yeah, so <laughs> that's, uh, so this pavilion is very much a prototype for a kind of urban scale thinking. And, you know, where, yes, it, we built a form that catches attention for humans. 
this thing could frankly be a device. It could just be like a little box with the nesting tubes. And then what we've right. introduced in this uh, pavilion is um, a panel that has a camera, an endoscopic camera linked to a microprocessor that photographs. Um, it's like they photographs about six hours a day, taking millions of images that get uploaded to the cloud. And we've got, um, we got two grants, one from Microsoft, one from National Geographic to just build Oh my build gosh. Oh yeah. That's I, so cool. <laughs> well, they, it was because the idea was that this pavilion would not just be like a big bee hotel. It would be a working bee hotel, one that monitors and, and that provides data that, you know, scientific data on pollinators, it's very expensive. It takes, takes mm -hmm. a lot of time. You need a lot of people working on the topic. Um, and we, we propose, look, if we just embed cameras over the nesting tubes and we make a panel that can protect the equipment from rain that has an off the grid power source, like architecture can do off the grid, architecture can do rain protection. And why not, you know, have a space for, for these native habitats too, native pollinators, I mean, then, um, then we can create a database of millions of images and begin to say, hey, in this sphere, in this part of the, the state, we can say your bi the, the biodiversity profile of the pollinators that we see nesting here is this, and um, start to identify them, not by species, which is like super granular and often like you do have to kill them to dissect them and make sure you know what species it is, but you know, a more blunt, like a more brute level, that's the family level, where it still tells you what your biodiversity profile is. You just don't have to kill things to find right. it out. You can do it through image recognition and artificial intelligence. And that's so our building houses other species, but it also houses technology. And we think the technology part is part of how you protect the environment is by harnessing like that insane capability of global computation to identify species and build, you know, build what we don't know yet. <laughs> wow, that is so amazing. That's so interesting. Oh my gosh, so cool. I'm like mind blown. Um, well, the, the cover of the book that you have um, has a picture of a human talking to a pavilion, a, a person talking to a building through their phone. And the, the, build, the little pavilion communicates about uh, pollution. And I think that's... So cool you know, why we, our devices are quite smart now, you know, yeah. they can talk, they can store a lot of information, they certainly store our location. So why not build a better understanding of the environment, you know, with technologies that are tiny anyway, so. Yeah, it's a tool. It's <laughs> such a good tool. Wow, that's so amazing. Oh my gosh. Um, I wanted to ask about any other past projects that your firm has worked on that have really been special to you or or maybe your favorite to work on and hmm. what you learned from them and the inspiration behind them. I mean, the pollinators pavilion is, that's been, you know, I would say at least a five-year project that started with a pavilion that we called the birds and the bees. <laughs> um, again, pan, just taking the idea that why don't we share the building facade with other species? Why, why not just, they can be on one side, we can be on the other side. You know, and so so I, I think the Pollinators Pavilion is really a kind of big ongoing work for us. You know, we're working through the whole AI part. I have team members that are trained both. I have a couple of uh, students, Pratt students that were trained both in architecture and computer science. And they, oh, wow. Yeah, I have uh, one of my collaborators, Yu Xiang, is um, amazing, <laughs> completely led the ability to integrate AI into a building, um, a building panel. Um, and then we've, um, so when you ask about, you know, favorite projects, it's funny because the projects I'm describing kind of revolve around a similar network of people. So up in, in Hudson, we were very lucky to start a dialogue with a curator named Francine um, Hunter McGivern, and she has a beautiful show space called CR10. And she would wanna, you know, she's very invested in 
eco ecology and ecological art. She's an artist herself. Um, and put together a few exhibitions that we were part of. And I think that started to demonstrate this whole community of very, both artistic and environmentally minded designers throughout Hudson, throughout this whole area. And it was, you know, if you ask about like, what would the favorite project be? I think it is Pollinators Pavilion, but Pollinators Pavilion is like, a, it's like a constellation of projects. Mm. And she is certainly a big part of that constellation. Other people would be people like Ben Dobson, who um, uh, runs Old Mud Creek Farm, uh, Stonehouse Grains. He's, you know, Hudson Hemp, Hudson Carmen has done incredible work on how soil can sequester carbon. And yeah. I'm sorry if I sound like, I feel like maybe I sound like a very granular <laughs> environmentalist. No, it's so interesting. <laughs> you know, I think, I think that if you're going to bother as an architect to quantify like how much energy you're saving your client, like why not figure out a little about carbon sequestration? So, so Ben would certainly be in that, that satellite. We have very, very dear architect friends throughout Hudson that, um, that have a firm called Numa Studio that is based in Hudson and they have, uh, Chris Perry and Catherine Dwyer have curated a number of beautiful exhibitions, one called Ambiguous Territory that went all over the place and these works were in it. Um, they might be actually a really lovely group to, to include in your series because they're, they're very much in a, in a similar geography. Um, Catherine Dwyer is a landscape architect, Chris Perry is, um, an architect, and I got to know him when he was my critic at Columbia. So he was. Oh wow! Um, and uh, and I think those you know around projects form entire networks of people, and it's it's I think that's you know a successful or a project that I love is one that has a really lively network. You could say a lively ecosystem, even. Yeah. Like, you know, continues very much um, now that we're developing it in many ways uh, with project, uh, working with different students who are graduates from my program. Um, uh, you know, a couple of sites around New York City. We also had the benefit of having a fantastic um, corporate material sponsor called Duktal, which is part of a huge cement conglomerate, but they were really, um, you know, they're, they're also pushing incredibly ecologically conscious ways of making concrete, all kinds of biocrete, hempcrete. I mean, yeah. you know, amazing. Yeah. I, I think that the change, the ecological mindedness, you could find it on a material level firms that used to make, building products without a real consciousness of the toll of the extraction um, to people that are doing like all kinds of work sustaining, you know, timber building or different indigenous practices. I mean, I feel yeah. like it's a pretty changed environment from when I was in school, um, which is great. <laughs> yeah, materials is so interesting. And that's how, I mean, we even talked about that I'm pretty sure every department at my school talked about materials because that's so interesting. There's so much innovation happening. And then I also listened to a TED talk about hempcrete, which is just yeah. incredible. Um, but also what you said about if you're going to, as an architect, know how much energy your, your structure is um, using, you might as well learn about carbon sequestration. Yeah. I mean, why, so why, you know, it's again, it goes back to your original question about what does it mean to be an environmentalist? Like, I think many architects would say, well, I know how much air conditioning energy I need to like make this building comfortable for humans. And right. that's, that's great. That's one metric of energy. <laughs> great. <laughs> but, you know, wouldn't it be good to understand all the other ways that your building could perform? I mean, mm. could it do work that doesn't have such a high energetic load or, you know, and, and I think it's that thinking where you, you're building, you can't really think 
about your site being the footprint of your building or even the footprint of the property you're designing for, you have to think about a much larger whole. And that's, you know, going back to Studio Gang looking at migratory bird paths. I mean, that was, that was a very powerful example of an architect who really thought like in very expansive terms, like imagine, you know, considering the, the migratory bird yeah. paths above, like not a lot of architects do that. So it's. Yeah. And that's like a perfect segue into my next question, which is, um, do you have any advice for young designers or creators who are wanting to design with the environment in mind? Yeah. <laughs> I have some pretty crazy advice, I think. Um, crazy because, I mean, it's, it's pretty personal, but I think, I think that to design with the environment can mean so, so, so many things. And I'll give an example that I think is kind of crazy. I've, I'm someone who I love horror movies. I love horror stories. I love all things horror. And I never knew why. I thought I just like liked it. But then when I got older and started to understand different environmental discourses, I think I like horror because it's usually about environmental catastrophe. It's a force that's bigger than human or tinier than human, but it's always non-human. You know, it is, an, it is a not human thing like the planet, you know, right. that or maybe like a new top predator, like any kind of creature coming to eat humans. And I feel like the and I feel like horror is the genre that we have to talk about environmental catastrophe. And it's one of the spaces that I always look to to um, you know think about different motifs for for design. So that's a very roundabout way of saying that I think the way you proceed as a designer working environmentally, you probably have to do like so you have to do, but I would say your most um, truer or satisfying work may come from following extremely personal interests. And they may seem like they have nothing to do with technological efficiency, you know, green standards, etc. But I, I believe that you can find all kinds of inroads to, you know, the basic question of, how do we live on the earth with other species? What are we doing here? How do we cohabit equitably? You know, the, the kind of big questions are all related. And it's just, you know, I would, my advice would be to, for young designers to really trust, trust what you love, trust what you love to read, trust the graphic novels you love, trust the movies, trust the music, like whatever, trust it, because it's, it just might be part of your way into a pretty, complex, um, not, you know, certainly not solvable issue um, and a condition that, you know, we, we don't really know what kind of ecological future we face, but, you know, I think working on the problem is, is, is imperative, like it's urgent. So I don't know. Does that say it's yeah, like trust? <laughs> no, trust that makes complete sense. <laughs> I love that. Wait, that's really exciting too. And I think, and it's funny, I feel like from the few episodes I've done for my podcast so far, there's always this like ongoing theme throughout the episode that just ends up being ever present as we converse. And it, again, it makes me think of like, don't, you don't need to think in a linear way to like, you know, you don't need to follow A, B, and C to design in an environmentally conscious way. It's how can we look outside of ourselves and outside of conventional thinking to bring new solutions to the table? And as a, as a new generation, as a different generation, you know, your approach is it's every generation misses stuff. They miss big stuff. And, you know, we wouldn't know even what to teach you that will show us like the big thing we're not looking at that we should be, you know, that's your generation's work. That's your insight. And I think that's where your kind of trusting yourself and the instincts you have will lead you to probably similar issues, probably a more difficult environmental picture, thanks to, you know, the human legacy on the earth. But um, 
you know, I, I think it's also trusting yourself that you have insight and, and that insight, you know, it may not be, it should be supported by your teachers, but some, some people don't see teaching that way. I see teaching as a more open field where you're trying to have, you know, more of an exchange and dialogue. So trust, trust things you love. <laughs> awesome. Wow. I would love to take a class from you. <laughs> I feel like you'd be so interesting to hear lecture. Um, I love it. I mean, I, I like teaching a lot and, and, you know, I think we've, been doing all these online formats using Miro boards and of course Zoom, but all these different ways where you can really pin up virtually and everyone sees each other's work and it's just, it's a fast and gratifying way to work. So yeah, for sure. Yeah. So my closing question, well, just to go back, I, I really do love what you said about trusting your instincts and that's so encouraging to hear too, especially when you're young, I'm sure like you can remember when you're a young designer so often you question that or you feel like you can't or you voice. feel that there's a right way to do things and yeah. there is not a right way there's your way and right. the faster you figure out what your way is the more time you have to do it you know to go deeper into the material but it's trust your way <laughs> that's that's so encouraging um but yeah my closing question that i ask everyone is um as an individual and an environmentalist what gives you hope for the future <laughs> mm, oh, wow, that's yeah. a really, really <laughs> tough one. Um, well, uh, I am also a mom. I have two daughters. Uh, one is five, one is two. Um, there is, there, it's crazy how, how cute and like just they're absorbing everything. They put things together. And that's where the, you know, the instinct that they have for assembling narrative or ideas or like weird objects. <laughs> Um, is really inspiring. So um, that kind of hope is is really strong. I think on um, on another level, you know, I think I think the human sciences have never been more acute. You know, if I think if every age of human culture has an achievement, you know, I think that our technology and science is just so amazing how much we are learning about different scales of matter, different scales of life, you know, yes, viruses, um, all kinds of conditions that we've created. I'm not sure I think the answer is to go to Mars. I think, you know, maybe we should try to work things out here first. And I, I think there's some really big picture thinking that gives me hope, like, you know, Ben Dobson at, at Hudson Carbon will say, look, the soil can sequester carbon, just like make, you know, why don't we try to make better soil instead of just trashing the soil? Um, you have similar movements with the ocean that yes, sea oceans are rising, but oceans happen to sequester a lot of carbon. You know, th there's all kinds of productive activities that what if we all ate much more algae-based food? You know, that there's there's a lot of hope that for me that marries technology and that, you know, tries to look at some of the situations that are inevitable, like global warming and rising seas and ask, well, okay, do we start building to live on the sea? Do we start eating from the sea? Do we start sequestering carbon better, you know, instead of treating it like a plastic dump? <laughs> so I'm, I'm hopeful that that kind of the awareness that's happening is, is going to produce you know i'm not i'm not a scientist so i can't say like whether we have a chance or not but you know i like working on the problem so <laughs> yeah that's yeah i completely agree because i you know it's funny i was talking to someone about this recently and i was like why is elon musk trying to go to mars when like we have so many issues right here in front of us and the tools to make it better we just need to allocate the, those resources properly to to do the work here and make our planet it sounds know, a little escapist doesn't it it's right? like i'm yeah. gonna just leave you the bad planet and whoever can afford this new existence you know come on board i just i think that as humans we can do better than that like, yeah and could. that's a matt damon movie there's yeah. really a movie <laughs> about that it's exact it's that exact plot um but yeah so that's 
yeah, I completely agree. And also, where can people connect with you? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So um, my firm is called Harrison Atelier. Um, and so I have uh, a website or, you know, people who are interested in some of the more academic questions can just go to Pratt, to the School of Architecture. I'm in the faculty there. And my Pratt email is, is right there. But so it's, um, we also have a pretty like growing Instagram presence, both through Harrison Atelier and through Pratt, um, kind of on all, not all the social media, but you know, some of the more basic ones. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I think our firm, so the, you know, if you don't mind posting the link to our firm, that would be fantastic. Yeah, of course. And, um, and then my personal email at, at Pratt, I, I think you have it or we were on Gmail, but, um, I'll, I can just send that to you and feel free to post, you know, different ways to contact me. I would welcome it. <laughs> Thank you again, everyone, for tuning in to this episode of Seeking Sustainability. If you enjoyed this episode or any others that you've listened to, then make sure to follow the podcast on whatever platform you're tuning in from. Also, to stay connected, you can follow the podcast Instagram at Seeking Sustainability underscore podcast and my personal Instagram at julia.planford. As always, feel free to reach out to me regarding any questions, comments, or episode requests. And of course, share this podcast with anyone who you feel might be interested in learning a bit more about environmentalism and sustainability as well. Thanks everyone, and I will talk to you guys soon.